0: episode is airing on Tuesday, November 10th, 2020. Hello, everyone. This is Shannon, and I am here today with an interview with author Brian Washington, who will be chatting with us about his debut novel, Memorial. And then, after the interview, we have a fantastic amount of new releases to discuss. So... Since this will be a little bit of a longer episode for a Tuesday, I want to hurry up and get right into it. So we'll do the housekeeping information and then we'll go right into the interview with Brian Washington. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Book Bistro podcast. This is Shannon, and I am joined today by author Brian Washington, whose novel Memorial just came out on the 27th of October. So, Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on, Shannon. You're welcome. Could we start off by giving readers a bit of an introduction to your book? Sure.
1: Memorial is a love story at heart, but it's also a story about a series of folks who are trying to figure out what it means to be okay as individuals, and also okay as people among other people, as a collective. And they're also trying to figure out what home means for each of them, whether home is a place, whether it's a history or a family, or it's a feeling, a very intangible thing that you can find in a number of places.
0: So this is a novel with quite an extensive cast of characters. And as I read it to um, prepare for the interview, I found myself really intrigued by the way you were able to mold all of these their own distinct individuals while still creating a really cohesive whole narrative. Was it difficult for you to kind of get into the heads of so many people and understand all of their motivations?
1: It was a little bit tricky, but I think that's also a part of the fun of it, is trying to figure out what each character's desires are, what their loves are, what they're reaching toward, and perhaps the things that they don't even know that they're reaching toward, and how that reflects off of the characters surrounding them. So spending time with them through editing and through the drafting process was just one way of getting closer to the heart of that for each of them.
0: So the whole concept of being okay and really being at peace with who you are and really feeling accepted, not only by the world at large, but also by yourself, I think is a really, really on point topic for so many people right now. Can you speak a little bit about what sort of inspired you to create this group of people to tell this story?
1: Yeah, so originally it was a short story, and I was in the midst of writing what I thought would be the second book after I'd written that story. But I found myself returning to those characters and their concerns, both thematically and I suppose their structural concerns, and they stayed with me. And I think that wanting to figure out where they would end up and wanting to see what the end of their story would yield or trying to get as close as possible to the end of their story was the impetus for actually finishing the book in the long run.
0: So it sounds like then as you were creating this, you didn't necessarily know where all of these people would end up by like the final page of the book.
1: No, I sure didn't. And I think that that is largely one of the reasons that I was able to finish it. I think that part of the reason that I was able to sustain the interest in completing the project, because it's three years, and I think that for, I mean, especially, maybe it's exacerbated right now, but to (laughs) retain something for three years and, you know, to think through uh, any given thing for three years, you kind of have to really want to do that, right, to want to see what's on the other side of it, and not knowing where the characters would end up and wanting To see where they would lead one another was a pretty massive factor for me.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I look at people who, you know, talk about like they spend so many years creating like this one book. And I I find myself thinking, you know, I don't know that I could stay devoted to a project for that long. So I can definitely understand that. So this is your first Actual novel, but you also have a collection of short stories, is that right? yeah, that's right so how what was the difference for you in creating like those short vignettes versus like a full full-on novel?
1: I think the answer to that is twofold in that that idea of questions and of having an idea that will retain itself and retain its form and will allow for variability in that form and dynamism in that form was important for both projects. And for to the short stories in terms of having an idea that perhaps could withstand, you know, however many months it takes to get a story down on paper, right? Like, I can write a short story weekend, like, you know, a long <laughs> weekend, I can do that in three days, even though editing itself might be endless in a lot of ways. But the, I suppose, inertia required to see that through is very different from the inertia that a novel yields for me in that there were concerns that I needed to remain concerned by over the course of having written and over the course of editing and through all the pitfalls that were both in that liminal space between writing and editing and also afterward. And for Memorial, I had that. But as far as just a structural standpoint, I think that on the page, there really isn't that big of a difference for me, at least just because I'm someone who conceives of scene and operates with scenes that are usually 2,000 words and under, and that's sort of like 300 to 900 word space, regardless of the form. So as far as compartmentalizing, the moments themselves, it was a pretty similar process, but there were many, many, many more moments for a Memorial than there were for a lot of story collection.
0: So I am a reader of novels, and yet short stories have always been really tricky for me, because I feel like you just get that like bite-sized glimpse into a character's life, and I find myself like always wanting more, like no matter how complete an author is able to make a story, I find myself like wondering, but but then what? So it fascinates me when people are able to kind of move from form to form and give us these little bite-sized pieces and then write something with such a magnificent scope as you did with Memorial. Do you have a preference for like one versus the other?
1: Not really. I mean, I think that if I have the chance to write a few more, one might surface, but offhand, I think that they were both equally difficult (laughs) to try and do, you know, not were very much the same. But I'm someone who believes that the content dictates the form in lieu of the latter, and that I have, you know, if I have a idea that can withstand that sort of substantial word count that a novel might require then it's a novel and if there's an idea or perhaps a concern whether it's thematic or structural that can only hold up for 1500 words for 2000 words for 5000 words for 800 words and that's the form that that piece or that idea will ultimately take and what can happen from time to time is that an idea might outgrow its form in one given capacity, which is what happened with Memorial. It was originally quite a short story, like less than 3,000 words, but the concerns and the questions and the character stayed with me, and the form changed as a result.
0: So what made you decide to be a writer? I mean, I think, you know, when I was seven, I thought that I wanted to be a writer, and then I I grew up, and I realized that i don't really have the discipline for that. And so I went on and and did other things and started to become, you know, more of a, of a reader and someone who still engages with literature, but not in the same way that a writer would. So I'm curious kind of about the, the path for you to becoming an author.
1: Yeah. I think that I'm someone who thinks and organizes their thoughts largely through writing, So I think that regardless of whether I was able to monetize it or whether the things that I'm writing are getting visibility or not, I would still be writing, even if only just to give context and give structure to my thoughts on a daily basis. But I think I was really fortunate in that I met Matt Johnson and also Joanna Leek, both of whom were instructors that I worked with who were deeply receptive to my structural and thematic and formal concerns and the act i suppose or like the generosity and the thoughtfulness of someone saying hey like maybe you should keep going or hey maybe you should keep trying to do this because i'm receptive to it is and feels like a really rare thing so i was fortunate to be privy to that pretty early on and after that i kept having opportunities to write the things that I wanted to, which is, again, like a gift and a privilege in a lot of ways, but something that I really held and hold dear. So I think it's like an active decision and an active choice to, you know, decide like, okay, like I'm going to write today or I'm going to tell a story today, or this is what I'm going to try to do today. But to have opportunities to get to do that um, is privilege privy to it, thanks to the folks uh, who've been generous with their time.
0: So do you have a specific process that you use when you're writing? Like, do you try to sit down and write a certain amount every day, or in a certain place every day? Not
1: really. I mean, I'm pretty flexible. I think that in the old times, I would write in boba shops, and I'd write in coffee shops, and I just had my usual rotation. And I'm someone who's pretty taken by airport terminals in oh. that you, yeah, you know, like, a, particularly like the quieter ones and, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in uh, the Houston's International Airport over the past two years, and a lot of that time was constituted by just like waiting and Being in a place where there's nothing immediately happening in my foreground, but in the background, there's minimal action or, like, light action, um, I think is ideal. But I'm pretty flexible about where I can write as far as when. If it's generative material, then I wake up quite early and write, and, like, quite early is, like, 4.30 central time, like, my time, like, 5 o'clock central time, my time. Yeah, no, I wake up really early. Um, but I kind of have to, if it's generative material, like something I'm putting on the page for the very first time and I'll work for, you know, four or five hours. Um, and that's kind of prior to the rest of the world enacting itself (laughs) upon me and my thoughts for the rest of the day. Um, but as far as editing is concerned, I can do that most any time.
0: A lot of authors that I've talked to have talked about you know drafting being kind of the simpler part of writing for them where editing feels more difficult. um do you find that to be true as well, or do you have a different view?
1: Mm, I think the drafting of it is definitely more difficult for me, whereas editing is a bit smoother, right? like editing always feels a bit more natural insofar as anything about writing feels natural but the drafting of it feels like the work of it um and you know memorial went through about 11 drafts and each of those drafts was about uh three mini drafts inside of that so memorial like took quite a lot of work to get into the shape that i wanted it to be even prior to my agent seeing it and then there was more work after that part of my editing my editor seeing it and then began the actual process of working with my editor so the, the novel went through quite a few revolutions but i think that it needed to in order for me to be comfortable with where it ultimately ended up because there's so many different things that are happening yeah. simultaneously in the novel and in order for that To feel true to life instead of a book in which too many things are happening that just required a certain amount of editing and a certain amount of balancing each of the events and each of their, I suppose, weight uh, upon uh, the characters.
0: This is, at least in my mind, a very character-driven novel as opposed to something that you read and, like, the action is nonstop, like, you know, a, a mystery would be. And I really, really loved watching the characters kind of come to terms with who they are and what their place is in the world, even if that's not always a smooth or even a complete process. So I'm wondering as you were writing did you find yourself kind of like wishing for more action or was it a very deliberate choice to kind of make this more of an internal kind of novel?
1: That's a really a thoughtful question. It was very much the latter. I think that I only knew a handful of things about what the larger project would look like for the outset. But one thing that I did know was that I wanted to write a novel that was largely characterized by the sort of creases in between the sort of capital letter moments or the sort of moments that be might be more amenable to like being like a highlight or like, like an action shot or like an action moment. Uh, I think partly because that was the sort of book that I wanted to read. And so many of the novels that I'm taken by are a bit quieter and they are a bit more internal and partly because those were the concerns that i had at the time like this question of like trying to be okay didn't feel as if that would be punctuated by like a bank robbery or like an extraterrestrial visit it (laughs) felt as if that would largely be you know like dinners uh, you know bar scenes like quiet parties um folks talking to one another on an individual basis and all sort of personal basis and on a really emotive basis and that was something that I wanted to reach toward because I wondered what it would look like featuring these specific characters from these communities in these specific places. I hadn't really seen that done the way that I'd wanted to see it done and I think that more often than not I'm writing the thing that I would like to read because if there were an iteration of Memorial or a version of Memorial that I read and I was super satisfied with it, like I adored it and I hadn't written it, then I would not have written it because it would be there. And, you know, it's a text that would exist. But because I didn't see it, I was pretty keen on trying to see what it would ultimately look like.
0: I love that idea of kind of being directed by what you want to read. I think so often People are directed by like what the market seems to want or what the political climate seems to want or, you know, what any given kind of external force seems to want. And so I really, really like the idea of just allowing your own kind of inner wishes to guide you in terms of like what you're writing. I just I think that's an amazing way to approach it.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, I think that I agree pretty wholeheartedly as far as a contemporary American literary fiction is concerned, there can be a tendency or certainly an impulse to want to follow the whims at any given point in time or want to follow what market seems like it wants. But a funny thing about the market particularly right now is that it really doesn't know what it wants until it wants it and by the time right. it wants that thing you're probably too late right given the publication cycle so writing the thing that you know you feel that you are interested maybe you're the only person that's interested in it but it's a problem that you want to or a question that you want to like get to the end of has been my mo for you know the past while and hopefully I have more opportunities to get to do that
0: so, you know, I am all for genre fiction, and I read a bunch of it. You know, I can plow through like a bunch of mysteries or romances or fantasy novels. And yet there's something very, very refreshing about approaching kind of a a deeper meteor book, not that it is like, quote unquote, you know superior to the others, but just that different way of viewing like slices of everyday life. Mm. And I find myself like really drawn to that like at some at some points where I'm just really looking for something that's going to make me think that can possibly like make me feel very deeply kind of beyond just that quick satisfaction that you get from reading like a really you know stellar like, thriller.
1: Yeah. I think the For me, and particularly as someone who, you know, I read everything. I think it's important to read everything, like whether it's a lot of YA, whether it's like a lot of genre fiction, whether it's like a lot of poetry, whether it's like a lot of memoir, like all of it is useful from like a structural standpoint, because you're seeing the different ways that other people tell narrative, but also like you're sort of expanding your own respective canon which can only be helpful as you attempt to, like, craft your own narratives. But trying to write a narrative in which, you know, perhaps it's, like, slice of life, perhaps it's, like, close to being, like, a simulacrum of, like, life as it's commonly understood among folks. I mean, you're still building a world, and it's still very much, like, an individual and very singular world in that, my iteration of Houston and certainly my iteration of Osaka is going to be very different from even a good friend's variation or iteration or family members or a stranger's or a friend's acquaintance, but none of them is going to be wrong. Right? Mm-hmm. To that we've done like our due diligence as far as like factual information is right. concerned, but like on a personal level and like an emotive Level, like your experience of a city is your own experience of a city. So you're presenting a new world and you're creating a new world. And that's a really cool thing to get to do and to get to spend time in a very specific experience of a place or the very specific uh, experience of a person.
0: Speaking of authors doing their their due diligence and, you know, really looking into factual information for a book, was there anything that you actually had to, like, research and learn more about as you were writing Memorial?
1: Uh, (laughs) everything to some extent. uh, (laughs) You know, but, but, yeah, but much this book, uh, the the writing process and the editing process were deeply characterized by research. Um, I research pretty extensively each of the neighborhoods that the characters revolve around Collected um, and researched each of the that every character sort of traffics in or navigates and negotiates um spent a good deal of time in bars in osaka both just because i was seeing friends and hanging out and uh also because at some point once it Sort of metabolize that the book would, in fact, be a book that I was working on from a more like strategic structural standpoint to get a sense of the rhythms of those spaces. Right? Um, I think that research and the writing process are not even a little bit divorced from me, even if it's something that seemingly would be natural, right? Or like seemingly would be something that I wouldn't need to research. There's a certain amount of work that like you need to do. And by way of that, I'm saying like, I feel like I need to do before I'm even remotely comfortable putting characters on the page. Because I think that if you have a foundation of research and if you've done your due diligence and you have that sort of expositional narrative with all of the I suppose peripheral details surrounding it, then you can really play with the form and then you can really play with the narrative itself because you know that your thing that you're trying to write has a basis in the world and it's a sound basis in the world because you spent time and done the work. So even before I started thinking about how to make characters refract off of one another and how to like create their lived experiences, on the page, I need actual experience to pull from. So very, very uh, extensive research took place for the novel.
0: I have always been a person who struggles to to research, at least struggles to research in kind of the um, like more academic way. I was mm. a grad student um, in social work and I found all of the like journal article reading, and like heavy, you know, statistical data analysis, just really, really difficult. And it seems like the kind of organic research that you're talking about, you know, spending time in the, the places and coming to like a deep personal understanding of the environments you're writing about seems like a much, in some ways, more enjoyable way to kind of go about the research process.
1: I would think uh, in- enjoyable, I'm, I could go either way on, because sometimes like, it's still work, you know? <laughs> you know? Sure. Like, why Why would I want to do this work, right? Like, um, but it's, it's necessary work, right? And I think that trying to find ways to make it amenable to you and your process is just as much as a process as the research itself. But there's also like this sort of overarching desire not to embarrass you know, your friends Uh, and your communities that you're writing about, whether or not you belong to those communities or if they're peripheral and parallel communities, right? Like you want to do right by the folks that you are looking to write about. And sometimes that means going on, you know, a week research binge to, you know, finish the last two sentences of like a very short, paragraph and sometimes it means spending an extensive amount of time in a place in order to round out the emotional weight of the scene or it means interviewing folks just to have a sense of what a character's geographic trajectory would look like as opposed to like what you put on the page and then making those changes on the page to reflect like what what actually would look like. Um, I think the for me as someone who was just could not have been a worse student what has made oh. like the research that just could not have been just absolute folly just like the worst but what has made like the research process of fiction and a story so attractive to me and so essential to me is that you're doing I mean there is like a there's like a tangible end goal in a way that perhaps felt a bit less tangible for me like as a student and that like I'm trying to tell the best iteration of the story as I can and I cannot do that if I do not have like a foreground and a foundation from which to pull from and if I don't feel comfortable with that foreground and that foundation and I'm personally someone who doesn't feel comfortable if like, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, like respect irrespective of whether the reader can parse that or not, like I still know. So I, I like to I like to feel comfortable before I try um, to do what I'm doing on the page.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So before I let you dash off to your next interview, I'm wondering if you have read anything lately that you would love to tell the world about. We are very big on book recommendations here. And what I love about talking to authors is that some of you have like really, really awesome recommendations for other books.
1: Yeah, so I've reread a novel called Nights When Nothing Happened by Simon Hahn. It comes out in a few weeks. It's another narrative that's set largely in Texas, and it's about family. And it's about coming together or not and trying to figure out one's history and one's place. And it's so many different things happening. So that was really lovely. I read uh, Pieces by Helena Yemi, which is a book that is not quite out yet, but it comes out next year. I'm quite excited for everyone to get to talk about it. Um, I read a graphic novel recently called The Magic Fish by Truong Le Wen, which was really lovely and really thoughtful, and it's a coming-of-age narrative and a kind-of-coming-out narrative, but it avoids, like, a lot of the tropes that can sort the of befall those narrative, which is really lovely. And also a book called Tokyo Ueno Station by uh, Yu Miri, um, which was nominated for National Book Award, which I'm glad for because that means more people will get to read it. But it's a lovely ghost story and a story about memory
0: Ooh. well i want to thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to chat with me this afternoon and also also to congratulate you on this stunning stunning piece of literary fiction
1: yeah thanks so much shannon i really appreciate you taking the time
0: all right you take care
1: likewise take care
0: So if you haven't picked up Memorial, I hope that after that interview, you will do so. And now, let's talk about new books, because there are a bunch of them this week. If you listened to last week's episode, you may remember that it was not a super full release week in the way that um, November 3rd often is or the third of you know any month the first tuesday of the month but here for november 10th we have so much great new stuff so i'm going to get right in starting of course with a few books that you've heard us mention before on our most anticipated books of november episode so first up we have one of stacy's picks this is a cuban girl's guide to tea and tomorrow by lauren taylor name and it is a young adult novel. Then we have another young adult novel, this one a thriller, and one that I am super excited about. This is Those Who Pray by Jennifer Moffat. And we hang out still in young adult land with Brooks' pick. This is Lies Like Poison by Chelsea Pitcher. And the last young adult I have for this section is Kristen's first November pick, and this is Rebel Rose. It's The Queen's Council, number one, by Emma Therrio. And then, for a thriller that Kira is super excited about, we have Little Cruelties by Liz Nugent, which I read last month and really, really loved. So now that I've mentioned those, I want to talk about some books that you haven't heard us talk about before. And first on that list is a general fiction title called The Care of Strangers, and it's by Ellen Michelson. It's set in a New York City hospital, and it's about a heroine who's a nurse there. And she learns a lot about self-care through caring for her patients. So it's a story of personal connection. It's a story of self-love. And in a way, perhaps, it is a story of finally understanding who we are, and what our place is in the world. So this is The Care of Strangers, and it's by Ellen Michelson. Then we have some historical fiction. The Fallen Angel. This is the Francis George's series, book three, by Tracy Borman. This is historical fiction. It started out with The King's Witch, which I believe came out in 2017, and it is very big into court intrigue, into the politics of the time. If you really want a deep dive into the London monarchy, I highly recommend this series. So this is The Fallen Angel, Francis George's Book Three by Tracy Borman next up is the lady brewer of london by karen brooks and i have read a couple of karen brooks other books my favorite being the locksmith's daughter which is about a woman who was a spy um, in i believe it was the 16th century and it was just super super intense and good and filled with all the historical detail that i could have wanted so this one the lady brewer of london is set in 1405 And it's about a woman who is trying to keep her family afloat. And in order to do this, she turns to the family business of her mother's relatives. And she becomes an ale brewer, which, of course, is a position that is mostly occupied by men during this time. So this is The Lady Brewer of London, and it is by Karen Brooks. Next up is one that I'm really, really excited about. This is a debut novel this is Glimmer as You Can by Danielle Martin. It is out in audio on November 19th, but available in print and ebook this week. It is the story of a dress shop by Day. And an underground women's club by night. It's set in 1962, and I'm so excited for it. It kind of reminds me from what I've read of the blurb, like a little bit of kind of maybe The Dollhouse by Fiona Davis. I'm not positive, but that's just like the sense I got from reading the blurb. So this again is Glimmer As You Can by Danielle Martin. And then we have Zarina. Zarina by Ellen Alpston. This is, again, a historical novel, and it looks at the life of Catherine I of Russia. And there's not a ton of historical fiction about Russia out there. So this one really caught my eye. You know, we see a lot of things about France and England and Italy and Ireland and, you know, Rome, but not so much about Russia. So this is one that I'm super excited about. It is Tsarina. And it is by Ellen Elpston. So how about some romance? Starting with historical romance, we have The Truth About Dukes. This is Rogues to Riches, book five by Grace Burroughs. And I know that Stacy talked about the first book in this series last year and she was really looking forward to it. I have never read a Grace Burroughs book. Um, I know a lot of people really enjoy her, and I don't have a good reason for not having read one. I just haven't picked it up. But if you are a fan of hers, you might want to check this out. This is The Truth About Dukes, Rogues to Riches, number five by Grace Burroughs. Now we have an author that I have read. This is A Lady's Guide to Mischief and Mayhem, A Lady's Guide, book one, and it's by Amanda Collins. I have not read this book, but I have read a few of her others and I really love them. I love the unconventional heroines she creates that feel like fresh and new, but still manage to fit so nicely into the historical eras that she's writing about. I love the strong female friendships she creates and I just love how smart her characters are. So this one is about an intrepid female reporter who joins forces with this brooding detective. They kind of like match wits and get up to all kinds of shenanigans, but it just looks super fun and fantastic. It is A Lady's Guide to Mischief and Mayhem, A Lady's Guide, book one, and it's by Amanda Collins. And let's have a rom-com. This is not something that I usually read, but this one looks outstanding. This is Written in the Stars, and it's by Alexandria Belfleur. It has nods to Bridget Jones and to Pride and Prejudice. It's a fake relationship story between a social media astrologer and an actuary. So this very free-spirited person, and then this kind of uptight person, and it looks like it's going to be so much fun. It is written in the stars, and that is by Alexandria Bellfleur. And a contemporary romance here, minus the comedy. This is Noble Prince, and it is the fourth book in the Tin Gypsy series by Daphne Perry, and I know that Sarah really enjoys her stuff. Um, I don't think this is a series that she's read, but I know that she's read several of Perry's books in the past, and so if you find that your reading tastes pretty closely ally with Sarah's, then you might want to pick this up. It is Noble Prince, Tin Gypsy, book four, by Daphne Perry. And now... I'm going to talk about some mysteries because I love them. First up is They're Gone. It's by EA Bars, and it's about two men who live very, very different lives from one another, and they are both shot on the same night, one in the head, one in the heart. Their wives are now searching for answers. Once again, it's They're Gone by EA Bars. Then, we have The Drowned Woman, Jericho and Bright Thrillers, book two, by C.J. Lyons. And she is kind of an interesting author because she writes some medical thrillers that have kind of a touch of inspirational fiction in them. Um, So, if you're looking for mysteries that don't have a lot of, like, gore and sex and profanity, um, C.J. Lyons might be a good bet for you. So, this is the second book in her Jericho and Bright series, and once again... It is called The Drowned Woman by C.J. Lyons. This next book I did not know about until I was looking for books to discuss this week. So it came as quite a surprise to me. This is After All I've Done, and it's by Mina Hardy. And Mina Hardy is the pseudonym for romance author Megan Hart. So she has written several um, erotic contemporary romances as Megan Hart, and now she's turning to psychological thrillers. So this is about a woman whose husband and best friend, they died in a tragic accident. And so she's pretty much lost everything. And now, as she's trying to put the pieces of her life back together, she begins to wonder if she has also lost her sanity. Hmm... This is one I definitely plan to pick up. It is After All I've Done, and it is by Mina Hardy. This next book is actually my current read for the moment. Um, This is Little Threats. It's by Emily Schultz. This is her second novel, and it's about a woman who who pled guilty to a murder 15 years ago and she served this time in prison, and now she's free, and now it's time for us to figure out if she is actually guilty. Um, Emily Schultz's first novel was called The Blonde. It came out a couple of years ago. Um, I am sitting down to talk with her actually later today, so definitely stay tuned for that in the next couple of weeks, Um, but this is Little Threats, and it is by Emily Schultz. Next up, we're going to look at neighbors and what if they're not who we think they are. This is She Lies Close. It's by Sharon Doring, and it asks a pretty disturbing question. What if your next door neighbor turns out to be a child predator or even worse, a child murderer? Now, no one really likes to think about this, but obviously there are people in the world who live next door to child predators. So what if that were you? If you want to know more, you'll have to check it out. It's She Lies Close, and it's by Sharon Doering. And I am going to end today with some some young adult novels. Um, First up is a young adult thriller. This is Teen Killers Club by Lily Sparks. This is right up my alley, and I think it will appeal to Brooke as well. Um, Because Brooke shares my love of books about assassins. So this one says, if you're framed for the murder of your best friend, like what else can you do but join a super secret society filled with teenage assassins? If you want to know more, check it out. I know I definitely want to know more and I'll be reading this as soon as I can. It is Teen Killers Club and it is by Lily Sparks. The last two books are continuations in series that have already begun. So first up, we have The Camelot Betrayal. It is book two in the Camelot Rising series by Kirsten White. The first book is called The Camelot Deception. It is a feminist retelling of the Arthurian tale, in case you couldn't tell from the title. Um, Kirsten White is so, so good at creating complex heroines, who, again, fit so nicely into the, like, world that she creates, but who also feel so new and different from heroines that we've read about before. So if you or someone you love is looking for a good retelling and you want some fantastic female, like, empowerment, definitely check out Kirsten White. This one is The Camelot Betrayal, and it's Camelot Rising, book two. And last up is the latest novel by Rin Chipeco. This is The Ever-Cruel Kingdom. It is the follow-up to 2019's The Never-Tilting World, and it is a novel, a series, I guess, that talks about these interconnected characters who live in a very interesting world that I don't want to spoil. I feel like this is best read with very little information so that as you learn the twists and turns that this series takes, you are just as surprised as I was. So this one is The Ever-Cruel Kingdom, The Never-Tilting World, book two, and it is by Rin Chapeco. And that is it for me this week. I hope that you are excited about at least some of the things I've talked about today. I know I was super happy when I was making this list because there were just so many things that I was excited to talk about. So hopefully your TBR piles are brimming with fantastic books.